Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, how you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good for someone who got like no sleep last night. None. Why'd you get no sleep? It's uh, by the way, it's Saturday, May one. Why'd you get no sleep last night? I don't know. It's just a restless night. Restless night. Mm-hmm. I uh, I went down hard, man. I went down oh, really? hard. Yeah, oh yeah. Did, did yeah, you I have help? help? Did you have help? <laughs> I had a lot of help. <laughs> Friday night, a lot of help. If you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Everybody yeah. wants to, uh, for me to put out my own strain. That's what really. People, yeah, that's what listeners want me to do. They want me to put out my own strain. Mace? Well, do you remember? I don't know if you've ever heard about this. There was a celebrity basketball game that I played in that I fell flat on my face in. I do remember that. And it came to be known as the Mace Plant. And so the popular idea is that the perfect name for a strain is Mace Plant. That's perfect. Absolutely be dead on the money, right? Yeah, I actually know some people who could probably help you with that. Oh, I'd love that. I would love that. Yeah, that's that's sort of a lifetime dream of mine. When I was a little kid growing up in Toledo, Ohio, I said, I hope someday I grow up to have a strain of weed named after me. My parents are going to be so proud when this actually goes Well, you know, down. you know your mom would be proud now because she'll make a lot of money. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, so uh, great guest today. Our guest started his career as a teenage stand-up comic in the 80s. He's gone on to become one of the best comedy writers in Hollywood. He's written for shows like Coach and Becker, The Martin Short Show, Family Guy, and Futurama. He's been nominated six times for the Primetime Emmy, winning once. And his new book is called It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Business made me fat and bald. Mike Rowe is here. Mike, thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, I'm happy to be here. The drive over was sweet. Very nice. <laughs> so you were kind of a, and we, we both read the book. It's, it's a great book. Uh, you were kind of a comedy savant. As a, as a little kid, you were a fan of jokes. Um, what, what was the first joke that really connected with you? Um. <laughs> part of it was I, as a kid, hung out at my dad's bar. I was seven, eight, nine years old. My dad had this really crappy bar in the middle of this shitty factory town. So uh, I remember those jokes from those guys hanging at the bar and probably jokes that would not play well in today's environment. But I remember so as a kid, like, it was hilarious to me. Like, there was a joke. So whatever blank nationality let's say the one at the time was i'll say the word from then this is you know but how did the polack break his leg raking leaves Mm -hmm. he fell out of the tree (laughs) (laughs) see as my my actual last name is mashansky so and i'm completely unoffended so you're you're on on safe ground there safe ground and what's What's interesting is like, it doesn't even matter the nationality. It's like the joke. So you can put in anyone who you want to make fun of. And that might've been the start of my career of writing roast jokes, I think. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because, you know, you were saying back then, you know, racial jokes were, were everywhere, you know, that's, that was the norm. And I'm the youngest of five. My oldest brother's 11 years older than me. And we had a pool table in our basement, which was the big social scene. And he had a group of friends over 
and we had, uh, it was called Race Riots. Do you remember that book? No. Okay, well, they they had it for different um, ethnicities, so this one was was all Polish. Was that so. ethnicities? You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so, um, so I, I, I brought the book down with me, and because it was something we read all the time. And I said, okay, you know, so, and, and I just read off like a ton of Polish jokes and, you know, no, my brother's, my brother's laughing kind of timidly and everybody's kind of timid. And after everybody goes home, my brother said to me, you are the biggest idiot. My friend is Polish. <laughs> <laughs> I completely insulted him for like 15 minutes straight. <laughs> but that was the norm back then. Right? What's weird now is I, I kept all the, jokes I've ever written when I've worked on the Comedy Central Roast. So I've worked on 10 or 12 of them. I don't know. So I have 200 pages of roast jokes, celebrity roast jokes. So I, I kind of flipped through them the other day saying, maybe this could be just a dopey self-published book. And I'm like looking through and I'm going, oh my God, I would, people would show up my house and, and drag me in the streets. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, and some of the stuff got on and it, it's just completely racist and crazy and it was only four or five years ago some of the really awful stuff you know it's crazy yeah well you know i always think we were talking about this yesterday on my on my radio show there's a show called you you remember the show entourage and entourage doug allen is the creator and doug feels like hbo has kind of buried the show because of, uh, you know, uh, Me Too and because it was so, sort of toxic bro culture. I just think what they should do is put a year on it and say, look, this is what it was like in this year. Almost like, not an, an, a warning label, but almost like a context label. Like, this is, this is the way the world was then. What, does right. that make any sense to you? No, I think that's important, especially like they're, doing everything like, you know, taking down Mark Twain books and stuff like that, it, 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 or even editing them. I think you just got to do that. Just put a little disclaimer up front, you know, because um, it's weird. Then you're kind of erasing history, you know. Yep. Uh, they want to change Gone with the Wind and pull scenes out and stuff like that. It's, it's just odd, you know. Yeah, Gone with the Wind, just say, it was 1937. The world was a different place. Right, that right. stuff you know, would go. Yeah, in case you don't realize that when you watch the movie, it's like, you know, I guess it is a different time. People are in carts and getting around. <laughs> yes, right, the horses. <laughs> it's, it's just, I'm, I'm just sort of dumb to all that stuff, and I try to understand, but it's constantly changing, you know, so it's hard to keep up and try to be cognizant and helpful and understanding of it. But it's hard because I've been developing a bunch of stuff, and... I'm always very conscious of, like, when I build out a character, I, I feel like I'm overthinking it, making sure I'm not, you know, being politically incorrect and that sort of stuff. But there's stuff I just don't know and maybe just will never know because, it, again, it's just hard to keep up, you know. Now, did, now do you get a, a little more leeway in, in animation? I mean, you, you went from, you know, you know, writing just, you know, conventional sitcoms and then, you know, moved into animation. Do you get more of a free pass in animation? Mm, no. I don't, um, again, it's always changing, so I don't know what the latest is, you know, but um, I do get notes of like, you know, like women executives are very conscious of the women characters. So it'll be like 
uh, well, what's her background? What does she do during the day? And what's, you know, I'm like, uh, is it a cartoon character? I don't, I don't really know <laughs> that much. But. Waits to be drawn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, reading the book, I felt sort of a kindred spirit in a way with you because you were a uh, kid in the 70s that watched all those talk shows, Merv Griffin and, you know, Mike Douglas and Dick Cavett and Johnny Carter. And I, you wanted to be the comic. I wanted to be the host. Like I always wanted to be the host of one of those shows. And so I was a talk show nerd for that reason. You kind of were uh, a, a, a joke guy, right? You were in it for the comics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was crazy because, you know, my friends were listening to, you know, Foghat records and that sort of thing. And I was listening to my little cassette recorder where I, you know, put the mic in front of the TV and just record all these comics and listen to the jokes over and over and break them apart and try to understand them. And, you know, so I'm 16 years old with my friends and telling them jokes about my lawyer and my wife, you know. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, joke's a joke, you know. Um, but yeah, I was so obsessed, and um, I, I'm not sure where that came from. I guess it really came from, like, again, being at the bar as a hmm. kid and seeing the camaraderie. My dad had, like, 11 beer leagues, softball teams. He was hmm. in the beer league. And those softball players, I was a little kid, and they were in their 20s. And just watching sort of the brotherhood that happened when they just make each other laugh, you know, so that, you know, you think, you know, a kid hanging out at a bar, it would be a bad thing. But I just kind of learned the power of humor through that, you know. Did, now, did they, did they censor themselves with you around? Uh, not really. And, and I was sort of more in the periphery, so I was an observer. So that was kind of the fun of it. But, um. But it was a rough place. I mean, there were like gunfights and, you know, there was just pimps and drunks and, you know, thugs and, you know, uh, my, uh, I write about this in the book where my dad had a, a go-go dancer. Yeah. <laughs> and as a kid, I just did not know exactly what that meant. I mean, I knew basically what a go-go dancer was because I watched laughing, <laughs> you know, the, the <laughs> go-go scenes but um my dad would always just get me home quick as before the dancer went on and there was this one night where like it's getting near nine o'clock go-go dancer time and my dad's not around and i'm like oh man what's gonna happen and i'm like scared <laughs> you know and uh i'm like hiding behind the ice machine you know waiting and like the lights go dark and there's only like six guys there and someone goes and cranks up the jukebox and this go-go dancer comes out in her sequin bikini and scuffed up white go-go boots. And I'm like, Holy cow, what's, is this, does, does she get naked or does she read poetry? I have no idea <laughs> what's going to happen. <laughs> and, and I do remember we had, my dad took from our Christmas tree, we had one of those shiny Christmas trees that had this spinning color wheel, and he mm -hmm. took that and put it in the ceiling, and that was like her spotlight of <laughs> Christmas color. <laughs> so I'm just like taking it all in, and just as things were about to happen, my dad, he had like been in the basement doing uh, counting, you know, cases of beer or whatever, and he realized it just, just pulled me out of there, like pulling a kid out of a burning building. He just pulled me out of the place, and I just... I, so I don't know to this day exactly what went down in the go-go dancer world, 
You've seen him since, since, right? My dad? No, the go-go <laughs> dancer. You've seen a go-go dancer and what they do since. Uh, yeah, I've seen some ugly stuff <laughs> in New York. So you had a big night at the Hartford Convention Center uh, where there was a stand-up comedy competition. What do you remember about that night? Um, are you from Connecticut, East Coast? No, no, I'm from Ohio originally. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that was sort of a pivotal night for me because, you know, how when we're all really young and like in grammar school, high school, we all have these visions of like what we're going to be. I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a pro basketball player. And, and at some point, like reality sets in and you go, I'm not going to play pro basketball. What, you know, and I had this really good job out of high school. I was working for NASA. I was working on the space shuttle. And I still was close to my high school girlfriend. And it's that moment where like, okay, this is the part where real life sets in, you know? And, but still like the stand up thing kept nagging at me, but it's like, but that don't be an idiot. You don't do that. And, and I was hopefully, I was sort of waiting for a sign, I think, you know, and my sister heard about this stand up comedy competition at the Hartford Civic Center. And the prize was you got to audition at the improv. You know, and of course, being a comedy nerd, I knew everything about the improv. You know, it was like, it was like this fantasy land, this wonderland to me. And, you know, because I, I was even telling my mama, you know, as a kid, I was like, I'm going to be a comic. And she's like, yeah, and your sister's going to be a ballerina. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this contest was, you know, holy shit. And it was a, it was a weird night. I was just really excited. It was in this weird place, a giant, like, felt like an airplane hangar, whatever. But um, but I had already been, like, a little bit of a seasoned stand-up because uh, this was a time before there was not uh, um, stand-up in every single building in every little town. There was no real stand-up clubs anywhere. But as a kid, I would go to bars that had bands. I would go in and uh, say, when the band takes a break, can I go on and do jokes? And they're like... What? Yeah, I just want, and they would let me tell jokes. So I had a little bit of seasoning. So I felt a little bit confident going into this thing. And then I see the sort of acts going up, and nobody's really doing stand up. It's like a guy, you know, juggling handkerchiefs and <laughs> some <laughs> woman doing contortions, and, and some guy did Steve Martin's act. So I'm like, well, and then I won the contest and got to audition at the improv. And it was like a whole thing of like, a limo came to my house to take me to New York. We go to dinner. And uh, 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 so, like, I'm in a limo. It pulls up at the improv, and I have these guys in suits with cards. They're coming in. We got Mike Rowe outside. He's ready to go. I'm like, I've been doing it for eight months, and I'm Rod Stewart all of a sudden. You know, it was like, <laughs> um, and it was so exciting to me, but it was that, like, if this blows up, I mean, will I recover? I mean, this is the place I want to be. And luckily, all that work I had done and all the studying and all the, you know, the desire to do it, it just, something hit me and I just felt confident and it just, it went very well and I passed auditions. So, you know, that's that's amazing, Mike, because, you know, my path was 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 much different. I mean, you, you, you actually bypassed 
the horribleness of having to stand online, pick a number, and just pray that you were going to get called or didn't go on at three o'clock in the morning to like four drunks. Right. So that was that, very, that was I didn't know, I, I, I'm just amazing how I don't know. And I didn't know this about you. And I've been friends with you for so long. And, well, the other advantage too, was they put me right in on prime time too, you know, so it was just a hot room and auditioning. You never get that, you know, like you're saying it's, yeah, it's, you know, but it sounds like even after, you knocked it out of the park at the improv. It still took a lot of time to sort of pay your dues and to earn your stripes and and all that stuff because you didn't get right back into the improv, right? Well, yeah, I was still living in Connecticut. And uh, uh, yeah, I was still working. And there was Sue Knows, Martin Harvey Freeberg. Marty Freeberg used to have a Saturday afternoon improv class, teach you how to work scenes and all that sort of stuff. So that's what I was doing. Once a week, I would drive to the club to do uh, Marty's class and then stay at night and hang around and watch the show. And uh, so I got to know the daytime bartender. Uh, Were you around for Al Armstrong? Do you remember him? No, I didn't know Al. Al was an interesting dude. He was this 75-year-old former, like, off-Broadway actor guy, just really heavy, chain-smoked, you know, marble reds. But he worked behind a bar during the day to kind of wrangle the bear orders and wrangle the phones. And so I got to know him a little bit because I'd come in these Saturdays and hang out with him at the bar and found out he was from Connecticut, too, and he we became friends. And then... I eventually said, I want to come to New York now. I have to, I have to get started. And he says, well, I have, I have an apartment across the street. Uh, you can stay on my couch until you find an apartment. So that was it. That was like, okay, I'm guessing I'm starting my life. Uh, living on a couch in a little tiny apartment on a, at a six-floor walk-up. But, you know, when I'm, I was still 19, whatever, so I was happy to do it. Um, I always tell this crazy story because I, you know, I didn't know Al, Al that well. And after being there a little while I, uh, and starting to get to know the, the comedy community and stuff, so I'd be hanging out late and doing late sets. And I, I came home, what, you know, two, three in the morning as comics do, and I'm, I'm getting ready to sleep on my dusty couch there. And Al's bedroom was right alongside there. And uh, uh, as I'm about to get into the, into the couch, like, he starts screaming. Uh, there's a ghost. <laughs> what, what? What? Right? There's a ghost right there. And I'm like, I won't, in front of you, there's a ghost. And he's like, shriek. There's a ghost. Like, I don't see a ghost. He's like, oh my God. What? And I'm like, holy oh, shit. Is he, is he having some kind of weird heart attack? Is he, you know? And then he's like, he's gone. The ghost is gone. I'm like, oh. And then there's this weird dramatic pause. He goes, um, if you're, uh, if you're scared and uh, want to come in here, there's there's plenty of room in in the bed, <laughs> and uh, it was sort of a ruse. And I was so dumb, I I did not get it. I didn't. I sort of got it, but didn't believe. It. I don't know. It wasn't until a few years after I moved out that I realized one of the waitresses there. I told her the story on the waitress at the improv, and she goes, "You know, Al's gay, right?" I'm like, "Oh, yeah, okay." <laughs> 
But but you were saying in you were saying in your book how when you told people you were living with Al, they kind of gave you like a strange look, <laughs> and you didn't know why. I know. I came. Uh, I just got over a cold, by the way. My third case of COVID. Again, uh, COVID again. Oh, again with the COVID. I know. The uh, turns out the rectal shots are a misnomer. <laughs> a anyway, lie. Anyway, I, anyway, gang. But you know, when I think of you, you know, well, we 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 did a roast for you when you uh, when you were moving. You got a writing job, and you were moving to L.A. And when I think of you, you to me are such a throwback to you know to the the comics that I grew up watching. You know, you were that guy. You were making the Milton Berle face. You know, and like we were doing anyway. You know, the Don Rickles, and um, <laughs> I mean, it's not a surprise you know, given how you grew up and, and, and the, the characters that you were hanging out with. But, like, what, what, who were the comedians that really influenced you? Well, first of all, it was Roger Marks uh, that kind of gave me a lot of the early rhythm and timing. And then, again, it was watching these comics with my dad as a kid and then the bonding that happened with that. So those were the old-time... Uh, comics so those were kind of also the first influences and so that's why i know those old school rhythms and that sort of thing in fact i've been doing uh david feldman's uh podcast and uh i was trying to break down the don rickles formula and he got so obsessed with it it's like it's like a running thing now he's like charging graphs of like trying to um so i i try to explain to him i'll break it down simply but it's yeah. like you you would ask a question about someone like, you know, say like, how's, uh, how's Roy Rogers doing? So the process is you first, you have a stall, right? The stall is, Oh, he's great. And you give you a little time. He's so it's either he's walking around, he's sitting around, he's standing around somewhere, someplace stupid doing something stupid. So that's the formula. So it's like, how's, how's Roy Rogers doing? Oh, he's great. He's sitting around the Pioneer Ranch putting gum on a donkey <laughs> for a half hour. So you can you have the option. You can throw the little half hour tag in there. So uh, that's the that's the formula for a Rickles joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love yeah, the look. fact that when you were young, you wrote a letter to Lorne Michaels saying do you have any jobs available or whatever whatever you said i'm i'm qualified because it reminds me when i was a little kid um i used to love stephen bochco series stephen bochco on tv and he started he was starting a new series about a minor league baseball team and i'd worked in minor league baseball for a few years for the toledo mud hens and i thought i have got a lot of insight for Stephen bochco and i'm going to go to hollywood and help him so i called his production office and they put me through to him. I actually talked to Stephen Bochco. Mm. He was, couldn't have been nicer about it, couldn't have been more friendly about it, said, I, I don't think we need your help right now, but we'll keep you in mind. You did very much the same thing with Lauren Michaels, and you got a nice response, right? Yeah. Um, it's funny. It's My sons were brought up in because of me in showbiz world. I mean, they got to spend their childhood at like table reads at Futurama and Family Guy and 
They go to like rap parties and they hang out with Matt Groening. You know, their kids like asking Matt Groening, why are the Simpsons yellow? You know, like, so it became part of their, their persona. So I, I said that because doing those kinds of things, it's so, there's an innocence to it and there's a naivete to it, but it's still, as we get older, we kind of stop doing that stuff. And I try to tell my sons, you, you kind of need to do that and need to keep doing that, to keep that kind of innocence to do stupid things. Because, uh, I, you know, when I sent that to Lauren Michaels, I was whatever, 17 or 18 or something. And because I won the, you know, Hartford stand-up contest, I thought, you know, this will get his attention, you know. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, even then I knew, like, more than anything, this is about collecting rejection slips because even being rejected, I feel like I'm doing it, you know? So that was part of it. You know, it's just like, I got, I, they, they, it's like they really live, they exist. I, I've actually communicated with them, you know? So it's a real thing, you know? Because I was still living in my little hometown and the letter was something like, you know, I, I should really, I really deserve to be on the cast. Um, and I sent a dollar saying, I, this is not really a bribe, but just get yourself something nice, you know, <laughs> just to see how they would respond, you know. And I, and I still try to do that stupid shit today because sometimes you never know. Yeah, you never know. know. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Right. Well, I remember, you know, when, when we were writing together on Brotherly Love, um, which was my first writing job and probably the most fun I've ever had in a writer's room, you brought hand puppets for all the, the writers and they were basically it, what you, you bought them based on who you thought would fit their personality. So I think mine was a monkey. You bought a horse for somebody. And I remember um, Paul Witt and Tony Thomas, Witt Thomas, you know, who could be bigger in producing comedy shows. They produced the series and they came in one day to hear some pitches and you pitched everything with your hand puppet. All the jokes came out of the hand puppet. You had a voice for the hand puppet. And, it, and they were hysterical. So you've always been kind of that, that ballsy guy, you know? I mean, you wrote, you wrote jokes for Rodney Dangerfield when you were a kid. I mean, that, that is unbelievable. And you developed a relationship with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh it, it, yeah, I figured if I knew the jokes so well as a kid, and he was my favorite, and studying them and doing them over and over, and it was a moment where watching him on The Tonight Show, he talked about uh, how he started in the Catskills, and he had this club in Manhattan called Dangerfields. So my little gearhead brain said, well, if I wrote jokes to him and sent to Jackie Roy at Dangerfields, it would definitely get his attention. So it's the same thing. So I got out my mom's big clunky typewriter, manual typewriter, and plunked out a couple pages of things, sent them to Jack Roy, and a couple weeks went by, and I kind of forgot about it. And then I'm in my finished-off basement, you know, my bedroom in the, you know, and under the house there. And anyway, my mom, like it's 7 o'clock at night, the phone rings, and my mom's at the top of the stairs. Mike, there's a Rodney on the phone for you? <laughs> wow. Yeah, Mike, it's Rodney. How you doing? You okay? You all right? Hey, I'm like, what? 
you know, and he kept me on the phone for like 20 minutes. You know, these jokes are pretty good. You know, I like them. You're a funny kid, you know? And I'm like, holy shit. And I told him I wanted to stand up and he's telling me about all the clubs, you know, I don't come to my club. It's no good, you know? And, um, so it wasn't until like a year or so after I moved there that I, I kind of pursued it again. You know, I, I, I didn't even, you know, I'm sure I didn't remember who I was, but I called the club. And said, I'm a comedy writer. I have jokes for Rodney. And then they put him on the phone at the bar. And I and it's funny, I didn't have any jokes, but I kind of cornered myself. I go, oh, bring him over. Come on. And so I go, okay. And I spent a couple of days writing jokes. Go to his club. And he's his his uh, his little uh, office there is in the basement. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm still like 19 or whatever. And I'm on the couch pitching my little jokes. And he's pacing and he's wearing his crappy robe, you know, and, uh, and I'm not getting anywhere. And he says, and I pitch one and he stops. I'm like, okay, maybe this is uh but then he turns and opens his robe and pees in the sink. <laughs> no, they don't give me a toilet down here. You know, I got to pee in the sink. Like, Yay. I'm in showbiz. <laughs> uh, so uh, tell us about your date with Jennifer Aniston. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> um, we, we broke up by the way, in case you don't. Know. Oh, you did. Break. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. It, it, I, it I'm was, sorry. Sorry to hear the news. That was recent. It was recent. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't want to have any more kids. It's complicated. Um, it's, it's not, it's just a weird thing. Of uh, I had already moved out here to LA and there was actually a, a young woman that I really liked out here and there was no connection. I'm, I'm that guy, you know, that when I was dating, I always end up being friends with the girl, you know, I'm the mm -hmm. one, you know, taking her on dates, but you no, know, we're friends. You know? Anyway, so I was going to visit New York and this young lady said, well, you should visit my friend in New York while you're there. And I was like, I don't know anybody. And it's also that moment of like, when they're trying to set you up with someone else, it's like, now it's just over. But anyway, I, I got back to New York just to hang out. And I was met up with some friends and did some sets and just hung out in the city. And I kind of forgot about it. And then I just found her name written down with the phone number and I go, I'll call her. I didn't know who she was. And, uh, I set this thing up and we, uh, I go to her apartment. First of all, she, she wasn't even famous then, you know, and, uh, but she had this gigantic apartment and, I'm like, where, who is this person? Where? And then there's Jennifer Aniston. And I did sort of recognize her because she had done some sketch shows and stuff like that. And then it was just, there's nothing to say except we just had this really nice day. We spent the whole day together walking around the city and we went to the movies and, you know, and, and then I ran into her a few times in LA and, um, and then a long time had passed. This was just that weird Hollywood moment where she had already been in Friends and been a superstar. And then I was going to brunch with some friends and I saw her hanging in front of the restaurant. And it's that moment of like, do I, is she going to remember me? Or is it going to be awkward? And what's the, and I was about to say something. And then she turns and starts making out with Brad Pitt. <laughs> and and it was over for you. Yeah, and then you realized that you weren't together yeah. anymore. I, I'm still, you know, <laughs> I still have uh, her email from. No, I don't. <laughs> so 
I'm curious, you, you go on, you come to Hollywood and you, you become a, a writer, television writer. What's the difference between a, and Sue, you can respond to this too, because you've been in writer's rooms. What's the difference between a really good room and is there such a thing as kind of a toxic room? It sounds like there were some rough rooms for you. For me, yeah. I, I don't know about Sue, and I, I always wonder, did I, did I happen to hit a big uh, leg of toxic rooms? Did I have a, a spate of bad luck? I mean, I had some great rooms. It's an interesting thing for me where I could be on one show and be like the star of the room, and then the very next show it's like, I have nothing to say. I don't know. I can't. I, get, I don't gel with anybody in the room. I don't hear the show in my head. and just gets ugly, and then... And, things get worse and there's anxiety attacks and weeping and <laughs> police are called at some point next to can are alerted and there's paperwork to sign. Anyway, gang, see, you just throw a, but Sue, what was your ratio? Was it? Um, I, I haven't been in as many writer's rooms as you have. I've been in three or four. Um, I would say one out of the four was horrible, and, and oh, I, don't I know even which know if, I know which one that one was. Yeah, I mean, I don't need, I don't even think we ever talked about it, but I worked on Ellen DeGeneres's second sitcom, the one she did with Cloris Leachman, the one that Mitch Hurwitz and oh. Carol Liefer ran, and uh, it wasn't so much that the writers' room was toxic; it was the experience of working with Ellen that was toxic. Mm. Um, mm. You know, she was. Um, particularly not very nice to me. So even though why you, know, you, I don't, I never found out why she didn't like me. You know, she used to kind of pick um, different people not to like, but she didn't like me across the board the entire time I was there. <laughs> didn't and like I you across the board. Like, I don't know whether um, I reminded her of someone she didn't like. I don't know whether I wasn't her hire. Um, I don't know whether she didn't like me as a stand up. I don't know what it was, but she was just really, really um, cruel to me. You know, she would never, wow. you know, you know, Mike, you know, you do the table read. Um, and I don't know the rooms that you've been in, but, you know, you go around the room and she would say hello to everybody. And she would say hello to the person to the right of me, <laughs> ignore me, and then say hello to the person to the left of me. Wow. He just went out of her way to be disrespectful from, to me. And when my option was up the second time, I, you know, I ended up telling Mitch that I didn't want to stay there anymore. But, you know, you were talking about, um, you know, situations where you've worked with showrunners that put so much pressure on you. This never happened to me, but I think it was Michael Patrick King who told me this. He was in a room where the showrunner would go around, um, go around the room to all the writers and say, what's your pitch? And then if they didn't have one right away, all right, next, what's your pitch? Next. And then somebody would, you know, Tell their joke. Oh, that's horrible. Next. Yeah. I've, I've never, ever been in a room like that. My, my first job was with Ed Weinberger from Taxi and Mary Tyler Moore. And he had this really dry, gruff, stoic, like, and I'm like, my very first job, I'm staff writer. I'm like at the table, my palms are sweaty. And it's always like, you, you, I, I don't even know how to pitch. I don't, but I'm trying, you know, and finally, I like, I finally squeaked out a pitch and he just looked at me and like, are you going to fight for that joke? Like, I don't know. Maybe I would for a minute. Yeah, that, that'd be a foolish minute. Okay, welcome to showbiz. Um, 
I was on one show, but I think maybe to your thing, sometimes people need like to find the person to do that to. Oh yeah, my experience. Yeah, because uh, when I worked on one show, I became that person. I think because he hired me, knowing I was a stand-up, so he thought I was going to be the guy jumping on the table and dropping my pants and throwing things. But it's like, no, I got to feel safe and you know. So I, I don't know what started it, but um, it 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 got really tense. And uh, so at one point he said, well, you know, why don't you come in early, go through the script, spend some time with it, get to know it. You'd be like ahead of everyone and kind of get a jump on the thing. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And so the, the next day after like spending time with the script, I'm going through the pages and we're going like, okay, I have a joke on page one. I think that, and I pitch it and I go, oh, that kind of went, okay, good. I'm kind of going through it. And it, it sort of worked. It felt like a good start. So at the end of the day, he kind of calls me to his office and he goes, uh, so what, what were you doing in there? And I go, yeah, I think it helped. I did the, I went through my script and he goes, yeah, but, but you were reading your notes. I go, what do you mean? You were reading your jokes off the page. I go, yeah, he goes, you're supposed to make them up as you go. You can't just read off the page. We're not at a business meeting. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So that's when the door goes down and, you know, like, all right, there's just no way this is going to work out. Yeah. I mean, we, we would work all day and sometimes until midnight, one in the morning, I'd get home and, like, walk the dog or just kind of take a break and then check my email. And then a few times at 1.30 in the morning, he jumps on my instant message and starts yelling at me. He's like, I timed you from three to four fifteen, and you only pitched five jokes. You know, and he's like coming after me. But what was interesting, and again to your thing, it was like it's bully behavior because I eventually had enough, and I just one time he jumped on my instant message, and I wrote like two pages of you know what, fuck you, fuck you, and I just typed out like <laughs> you fucking blah, 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 and and came back to work the next day. <laughs> I'm like Larry Davis, expecting my job to be there after doing that but he actually kept me there and then stopped picking on me and then turned to the writer's assistant and that became his new target hmm. yeah yeah i've seen that I, you know i i do something that i wanted to ask you because you know there's i guess there's probably a lot of writers room you know do's and don'ts but and i and i'm curious if you've been in this situation where you you pitch a joke nobody responds you don't know you know the joke is funny but you don't know whether were people not paying attention. So you just, you know, you let it go. You don't say it again because that would be weird. And then somebody like a minute later pitches basically the same joke and the room just cracks up laughing. You don't know whether the that person heard your joke and saw that they didn't respond and it was maybe they could maybe claim the joke themselves I mean, have, have you had that experience? Because I've had that experience. I think what it is is because people are in their heads so much that they don't mm -hmm. always hear everything. Mm -hmm. See, there was a time because it's only a joke. And that's that's half of my jokes on my my list of uh, old roast jokes. It's like, like Flavor Flav was one of the people in it. And I wrote most of Kimmel's thing. And it was mm -hmm. just all like, I don't know why they, I don't know why. That's an interesting thing. Like, why? Why are you allowed to do that stuff on the roast? But then if you put it on Twitter, your career would be over. Are you still allowed to do that stuff on a roast? In other words, have there been... I'm, I'm trying to remember the last time I saw a Comedy Central roast. 
the last one I worked on was Bruce Willis. Mm. And it, but all the jokes were comparatively tame. Yeah. So there was there was no rule set or anything. But So I actually, I wanted to kind of finish with this. So you have written a book um, of your story, and it's great. It's great. Sue and I both, right before we were going to bring you onto the show, we were both saying, hey, uh, you'd write a good, you'd be, you'd have a good book in you. And, and you'd have a good book in you. What, what gave you the impetus uh, to say, all right, I'm going to write all this stuff down? Um, part of it is, part of it is I was writing it down, like writing these stories on Facebook. And then I was working on a show in Canada and I was spending all these hours in a hotel room and I had all that free time on top of like, I'm spending all this, you know, wasted calorie time on like online, just shuffling around doing nothing. So what if I put that time to more productive project, not just writing a script, but just do something different. Um, so then on top of like, I felt I wanted something for the young people who were thinking about doing stand-up comedy. It's the kind of book that I wish I had found when I was 17, just to get this kind of behind-the-scenes journey of what happens when you chase your wildest dreams, when you step out of your hometown. It's like kids can read it and go, I could actually leave my hometown and maybe something would happen. Uh, I hope I don't get my ass kicked like this guy. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you can, you can make your dream come true. You can do it. So I thought that would be cool and kind of inspirational to young people. And uh, so it, it's kind of worked in that way. I, I hear from young comedians who I don't know. They track me down and they read it and they found it inspirational. And at the same time, I'm hearing from stand-up comics who I started with, you know, however many years ago in the 80s, who I haven't heard from forever and they're finding me and they said, I read your book. And it was just like, I got to relive these times with you, but in that era and, and got to go on this journey with you. And they, you know, so that's kind of what I, I wanted to do. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm not going to get rich off this book or anything, you know, so I just wanted to have that out there, you know? And plus for some reason, I feel like I had some of the craziest journeys, probably more than most people. So, uh, and then it's I, a really I, good story. The whole thing is a really good story. Thanks. Yeah, Mike, I, I wanted to say that, you know, your book to me, it's like a 254 page, you know, love letter to show business. And uh, and, and our paths were very similar. Um, so it's it's so close to home for me. Mm-hmm. So I just I want to just give you a big hug and a big thank you for writing this book because I just loved every minute of it. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah, it was so much fun. And it was such a passion thing for me. And I'm, I'm glad I, you know, uh, um, I'm glad I followed through with it because we always say I'm going to do this and that and then we end up not doing it. I'm just glad I, I was able to get it yeah. out there. It's a uh, it's a great book. It's called It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald, the author, Michael Rowe. Uh, Mike, thank you very much for doing this. We appreciate it, man. Really fun. I had a great time, guys. Thanks so much. And there is Mike Rowe. It really is a, a funny book. And the thing I like about it, he talked about sort of that innocence and that naivete that people have. Uh, going into, th- I've never told that story about calling Stephen Bochco directly and saying, "I think I can help your show." My parents thought I was the weirdest fucking kid in the world. They well, really you probably did. Probably were. <laughs> I 
was right up there. I was right up there. When, when now, how he was very young. He was a teenager when he started doing stand up. When, when did you start? How old were you? I was. I, I don't know. I know it's not appropriate to ask a, a woman how old, but how old were you when you started? That's okay. You, I've talked about how old I am now. Oh, yeah, um, that's true. Uh, I was 17 the first time I did stand up. Really? Mm hmm. Where at? I went to, it was a theater where it kind of sounded a little bit like, you know, Mike's uh, pre-America's Got Talent. The Community Center? <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it was like I was going to say, it was like a pre-America's Got Talent type of situation where every, you know, you had jugglers, you had singers, mm -hmm. dancers. I was the only comic on the, on the bill. A friend of mine who was an actor um, uh, was friends with a director who knew about um, this show. And um, he knew that I wanted to do stand-up, and he said, you should go there. And that's when um, I found out about the improv um, soon after that. Right, right. And then I went to the improv. Uh, you know, it's uh, Saturday, May 1, as we record this. Sue, I am having a blockbuster week in terms of getting out into the world. Now that I have my two shots, I'm doing all kinds of stuff. Are you being careless? No, not careless. I mean, I'm wearing okay. a mask and doing all that stuff, and I've got okay. my two shots. What, what's careless once you have your two shots? I don't know what careless is. I well, mean, I still wear my mask. Okay. Well, because you, I, I heard you went indoors for dinner. We did go indoors for dinner. We mm -hmm. uh, had dinner at uh, Ruth's Chris with uh, Juan's dad on fancy Wednesday night. Fancy, Yeah, very fancy. Very fancy. Um, he picked up the check. The, uh, so I did that, and then today... Uh, there's a baby shower that I've got to go to and everybody says, and I brought this up on the show, bring it up with you. Everybody says I should not have to go to a baby shower. And I agree. I don't, baby showers aren't for the guys, are they? It's kind of become, um, more of a unisex kind of thing, you know, back really? in the, yeah, back in the day, you know, just women went, but now it's, uh, it's everyone. Yeah. It's just a pain in the ass, but anyway, I'm going to go. It's okay. in a it's in a park, and then tonight going to uh, West Hollywood for drinks and a birthday party, uh, and then Mister Social Calendar. Then tomorrow night we're going to the first event at SoFi Stadium, which is a concert called Vax Live, and it is going to be uh, the performers are Selena Gomez and her and Foo Fighters and J Lo. Um, and it's a whole big thing. It'll air, I, I guess, on May the 8th. It's going to air on all the networks. But I get to go to a concert, That's which I'm excited cool. about. Yeah. So did, did you have connections getting those tickets? No. Because we're personal seat license holders, they were offered to us first. That's part of the deal when you buy a personal seat license. So they were offered to us first. And we, we said, yes, we just, we're just looking to get out of the house. And I'm a big J-Lo fan. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. Aren't you a big J Lo? Isn't everybody? Doesn't everybody love J Lo? Um, you know, she's okay. That's it. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I don't think I'd ever go see her in concert. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. But I'm sure. I'm sure she puts on a great show. Lots of dancing. I saw her at the Super Bowl halftime show. She was great. So I'm expecting a great show tomorrow night. So you're. This is exciting. You are remodeling your Winnebago. <laughs> So if you're new to the show, Sue uh, likes to go camping. Her and her husband, Tom, have got a Winnebago. And now they're doing some work in it. They're doing a remodel, I guess, so that they can move into it full time. Do I have that right? No, you don't <laughs> at all. It's not a Winnebago, but I, I play along with you. It's a 16-inch trailer. 
it's a travel trailer. It's a couple's trailer. Yeah. Not big enough really to, to live full time. So maybe sometime <laughs> in our lives, we will get a Winnebago. And uh, I don't even think then we would live in it full time. But, you know, if I had to, I, I could do that. I would do that way before time would. Would you? Yes. yes. Yeah. See, I don't know if I could do it. I don't, I don't think I could do it. I yeah. can't picture me and Juan driving around the country in a Winnebago. Yeah. You don't know what you're missing um, doing this. I, you, yeah. you guys would have so much fun. Because I kind of I, I made fun of it years ago before yeah. I did it. And it's, it's just a blast. It's really? so much fun. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's outside and it's, well, it's outside, you but it's campfires. inside. You eat nothing but like uh, no. baked beans, no, baked no. beans and hot dogs on a stick and marshmallow. You make baked s'mores. Beans. I'm, I'm just, this is, these are the things you tell ghost stories around the campfire. I mean, are all these what are you, things five you years do? old? <laughs> this isn't like, like a horror movie, you know, where you're there and it's dark and you know, you hear noises and someone's Ooh. throwing rocks at the trailer and. <laughs> You have to go to the, you know, to the bath, you know, to the public bathroom, and then you see feet in the stall, and you know, it's it's not like that. These campgrounds are really nice, and yeah. they have, you know, um, great amenities. Plus, you know, we have a bathroom inside ours anyway, so I don't right. go into public bathrooms. Um, it's just fun, you know. I mean, it's uh, yeah, you're outdoors, but um, you know, Juan's a great cook. Um, he is a great cook, and, yeah. and Tom's a great cook. So no, we eat great meals. Okay, all we right. Eat, like gourmet meals that I would eat at home. And so, what's this remodel you're doing? You're adding a room what's to it, it or <laughs> new we're wallpaper? On, we're actually, putting on a second floor, hardwood floors. What are you doing? <laughs> we're converting <laughs> uh, the back. We're, we're putting on a, an extension into the onto the back. Oh, nice. Um, no, we're we're basically you know swapping out a lot of the lighting, making it mm. a little more cozy. You know, because yeah, the lights that nice. you get are like you know, it's like walking into Cantor's. You know, I mean, it's just really bright, illuminating. Um, so we've been doing that. We're going to put in some uh, backsplash in the bathroom. Oh, a backsplash. Wow. Do a little backsplash action. Um, nice. We, you know, bought like kind of cool um, shelving units that we put inside the cabinets. So you really are remodeling it. Well, it's not like, you know, we're not really remodeling it. I mean, it's like but the, you know pro- what? the property brothers have shown up and they're going to fix up your trailer for you. <laughs> yeah, right. <I'm laughs> like- pay these guys a million dollars to fix up a, a $10,000 trailer. Um, so it's a trailer makeover. You uh, trailer makeover. That's a great show. Yeah. Actually, there's a site that I want you to go on and look at. It's called okay. Out- Outdoorsy. Yeah. Okay. And it has all these different types of RVs and like campers. Okay. And you would not believe what people have done. You talk really? about remodeling. It's insane. I mean, people putting in like granite countertops and oh my God. putting in like, you know, paneling and, and like, you know, uh, like a, a, a wood ceiling and making it rustic. They're gorgeous. They're really, really, I mean, some of these, some of these remodels are probably like a hundred thousand dollars. Anyway. Cause I've got this image of you sort of like Francis McDormand in Nomadland <laughs> <laughs> driving around. Yes, working a, at Amazon, packing up stuff in a van. In a van. <laughs> well, you know those those guys. You know they were lifers. Oh they yeah, were no lifers, question, no right? question. And and they were they went to campgrounds where there was no electricity too. So yeah, that's, right. That's that's kind of a tough existence. Okay, I want to ask you one about one more thing here. So uh, you're a Mets fan. 
I am. Oh, and a Dodgers God. fan, right? You root for the Dodgers, Yeah, I root, I root for the Dodgers. Yeah. Mets are my first love. Okay, so Francisco Lindor signed a long-term $341 million contract with the Mets during the offseason. He's now batting two oh three mm-hmm. with three RBIs through 19 games, and he started to get booed at home. Mm-hmm. Booed at, it's still called Shea Stadium, right? It's got a new name, but it's- No, it's still, City Field. Oh, City Field. Shea Stadium's gone now? Yep, they killed it. All right, so uh, City Field, he's getting booed. So this happens with the Dodgers, Kenley Jansen, who is the closer for the Dodgers. The moment he comes into the game, he gets booed because of people believe he's going to fail or whatever. And I, all I can think is, who does their job better when they're getting booed? Like, if you want your team to win, if you want your players on your team to do well, why would you boo them? To me, it's not... It's not smart. Uh, and I, I just, if somebody next to me was booing Kenley, I would say something to him. I'd be you like, would. hey, don't knock Kenley. Right. And actually, hasn't he been playing pretty good this year? He's been, he's been all right. Yeah, he's been all right. <laughs> yeah, he's had, he's had his moments. But people still, for, for whatever reason. But didn't you do a bit about this once? I thought you had a joke about this. An accountant... Oh, no, I had a joke. Oh, I had a joke about how um, you get heckled as a comedian and it's the only job where people pay to see you and then try to prevent you from doing your job. Right, right. And nobody Um, heckles an accountant. Right. Like, you know, like, you know, what do you, you know, like, you know, try to get, you know, screw him up with like, you know, going through the numbers like eight, four, seven, six, (laughs) you know, while he's doing your taxes. Um, yeah, you know, it, it is, it is something that I, I have never done. I mean, even if I'm unhappy with, um, a player on a team, especially after they're paying them so much money and you have such high hopes. I mean, when they signed Lindor, everybody was like, oh my God, this is great. This is one of the pieces missing from the puzzle. And then he, he's not having a great season, but you know, and I don't, I I don't, I don't want to say it's New York because I guess it happens everywhere, but. I do feel that there are a lot of players that, that come to New York yeah. and, and it's, it's happened a lot with the Mets where they flourish somewhere else. They get to the Mets. <laughs> they suck. <laughs> and I'm not saying that he's not going to turn it around. Right. Here's the good he news. Turn it around. It's April. It's no, a baseball I know, season I know. and it's, April, it, it's May the 1st. No, I, I get that. Like, look, you know, I mean, um, what's his name? Um, Bruce, um, what was um, their outfielder that they got from the Reds? Some years ago, he came to the Mets and, uh, you know, he Jay was a power, Bruce? Jay Bruce. He was a power hitter and, and uh, he was, you know, pretty prolific hitter. Yeah, he was a big, big power hitter. Yeah. And um, and he came to the Mets and he just sucked. I mean, he was horrible and he was horrible until the very end of the season. He turned it around and then he came back the next season and he played, you know, really great. Um, the booing thing. It's just ignorance. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just ignorance. Um, and they have every right to do it. Every fan has a right to boo anytime they want to boo. And like uh, the Dodgers have a series against the Astros coming up in August. And I can promise you, I will join the booing. I will be at that series. I will join the booing because they cheated us out of the 2017 World Series. But I don't get booing one of your own players. Oh, yeah. You know, it reminds me of like those old like black and white baseball movies where it's like, you bum, get out of here, you <laughs> bum. <laughs> you know, it's just... Come on. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. All right. So, you know what time it is, Sue? Yes, I do. So, when my man Jacob, Jacob and Ronnie, and by the way, we've got listeners ever. I've noticed, by the way, 
an influx in South American listeners. Now, are you just making this up? I swear to God, I can see exactly where the downloads are coming from. South America, we are starting to click. We started to click in Mexico when we had Demian Bashir on the show. Now, is there, does someone translate it? <laughs> no, I think people, gen- I mean, English is sort of the international language, isn't it? Well, not in a lot of international countries. People are digging it. Anyway, if you're in L.A., <laughs> my man Jacob Bramrani knew he wanted to become a lawyer. He decided to focus on personal injury because that is the way he felt he could best help others. And Jacob also realizes that sometimes if you need help, It's not necessarily in the middle of the day during the week. That's why Jacob and his team are available 24-7. If it's the middle of the night, if it's the weekend, call Jacob. You will speak directly with a highly trained team member who will assist you. Jacob offers free consultations, and you don't pay Jacob a dime unless you win. Jacob is a real person, a real attorney. That's why he's our attorney. And if you're ever injured in an accident, he should be your attorney. Call 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB. Or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Call Jacob. Jacob. All right, I'll take it. Oh my God, that <laughs> was like it. that was like the best one yet. Yeah, masterpiece. That was a masterpiece. Take your word for it. Take your word for it. All right. So, uh, hey, listen. Thanks very much for uh, listening to the uh, show. We appreciate you guys a lot. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. Hit the subscribe button uh, for Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to uh, give us a, uh, a rating and write a few nice words down there as a uh, review. Sue, fun today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. 